Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into their midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Fiona. Come on, notes. Don't fail me now. Good morning, everyone. I'm Thomas. Uh, I'm part of the eldership team here in this church family. Genuinely delighted to be given the opportunity to teach this morning, particularly through this story. Uh, if your story is anything like mine, you grew up in a Christian home, uh, Christian parents, going to church, and you're familiar with these stories, right? You've heard them before. Um, the problem with becoming familiar with stories is we, become, we can become overly familiar and not fully see what's going on, maybe gloss over some of the, um, the nuances of the text. So it's been a real joy for me um, to have the opportunity to read through this the last few weeks um, and to dig a little deeper. Because it is such an interesting story, isn't it? There's so many little twists and turns. I don't know about you, but I have so many questions as we read this text. Maybe most importantly, who fixes the roof? Was there insurance? Who cleans up the mess? How annoyed was the owner of the house? Were they raging? Maybe they were in on it. If you were sat under a roof that started to have somebody digging in through the top of like, what would you do? Would you just sit there and watch? Would you say anything? Would you get up and leave? How long does it take to dig through a roof? Like, does it take more than half an hour? Did everyone just sit there in silence? How did they lower him down? Like, was it like, like rope on each end? Did they wrap him in like a rug or something? Did they tie him up and like drop him down vertically so that it, like he wouldn't fall? I have far too many silly questions for this. There are other more interesting, deeper questions that we should probably pay attention to. Maybe like, like just how does Jesus just heal somebody? What would it be like to perceive someone's thoughts and react to that, to know someone's heart? 
Questions make up a significant part of the Gospels, don't they? Everywhere that Jesus goes, he's asked questions, loads of questions, 183 questions to be precise. 183 questions Jesus is, Jesus is asked in the Gospels. You know how many he answers directly? Between three and eight. A little bit of debate there. Asked 183 questions, answers eight at most. What we actually do see is that anytime Jesus asks a question, he often responds with more questions. So Jesus is asked 183 questions. Jesus himself asks 307. It's almost like when people come to Jesus and throw these questions at him, he's like, listen, guys, you're, you're coming at me with the wrong questions. You're asking the wrong things. And if you want to get to know me more, it's more important that you deal with the questions I ask you. If you want to seriously engage with who I am, if you want to know who I am, listen to my questions, deal with those. And the questions that he asks of us, they provoke us closer towards him. They, they ask us to pay more attention to who he is. I want us to keep this in mind as we go through this text because there are questions that are asked of us that we need to pay attention to. Let me pray first before we go any further. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We say again this morning, Lord Jesus, we believe in you. We believe that you're alive, that you're real, that you're active. We believe that you love us. We believe that you've given us your spirit who lives inside us. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to stir our affections once again for your word. And may we become more like the risen king. May we become more like his image. May we be more grateful, more in love with who he is. Be with us, Lord. Amen. Okay. Let's jump in. Look a little bit more detail at the time whenever Jesus healed a ceiling fan. Thank you to those of you who were here this morning who laughed at that joke. Yeah. You guys need to give me more credit for that lesson. So um, skipping through, how did we get here? Let's quick whistle stop to how we got there. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. He then goes to the wilderness and he's tempted and then he starts his ministry and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight, recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are pressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's how he begins his ministry, and he does that. He says that in Nazareth. That's his hometown. People in Nazareth don't like it. They try to throw him off a cliff. Jesus moves on. He avoids that. He starts to cast out demons. He starts to heal people. He calls his first disciples to himself by showing them how to fish, so much so that their boat nearly breaks. He touches a lenser, a lenser? A leper, and that cleanses him. <laughs> I don't know what a lenser is. He cleanses a leper by touching him, which is outrageous. You don't do that. He's been busy. Word is starting to get around that this Jesus of Nazareth is kind of special. There's something going on with this guy. So there's a bunch of teachers, a bunch of Pharisees come to Sussamite. They join him in someone's home. Hard to know how many people are in this place. Some scholars suggest it could be 70, 75 people. People crammed in tight. 
So much so people are, 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 are crammed outside too, like inclining their ear towards the windows, trying to hear what is going on. What is this man saying? And so as we imagine the scene, Jesus is teaching, everyone's quiet, hanging on his every words because they've come to hear what he's had to say. And then dust starts falling from the ceiling. Just a little bit at first, and then a little bit more, then the rubble, then a hole starts to appear, and it surfaces that there's actually some guys on the roof here making this hole. Again, this is mental. So this, pro, this, this, this hole gets bigger and bigger, and eventually they lower this guy down who can't walk, and, they, and he gets laid in front of uh, Jesus. And when Jesus saw this, when he saw their faith, uh, and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of Jesus. And when he saw their faith, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven. Let's just pause a moment here. When he saw their faith. Just a little nugget. Just something, I think, just to challenge us. This paralyzed man has friends who are desperate for him to see Jesus. They want him to be healed. And they're doing everything they can to get him in front of this healer. It wasn't easy. I don't know if you've ever carried someone before. It's hard work. And they had to get him up onto the roof and then do all the digging and stuff and then lower him down. They have labored for this man's healing. And church, this is an amazing example of true gospel friendship. Why? Because real friends bring their friends to Jesus. Real friends bring their friends to Jesus. We must bring our friends to Jesus. We must be like this man's friends and do what we can to present our friends before Jesus. We can take example from this. Those who, maybe friends who don't yet know Jesus and love and follow him, we need to be bringing them before Jesus. Friends who are maybe, who are Christians, but who are struggling, whose faith is on the rocks. Friends who are in desperate need for God to deliver them in some aspect of their lives, maybe praying for their families, praying for their kids, praying for jobs, praying for other situations. I wonder, do we do this? I wonder because whenever I think about it in my own life, if I'm honest, there are people in my life who I need to bring before Jesus, and the way I get on, it's as if I don't really believe Jesus can help them. I don't act like Jesus can save someone. So this challenges me, this should challenge us to have faith like this man's friends, carrying our friends, bringing them up to rooftops, ripping up roof tiles, doing whatever it takes to bring our friends to Jesus, the only one who can save. Maybe on the other side of that, you're feeling like your own faith is paralyzed. Maybe you're in a bit of a spiritual funk and you can't get out of it. Maybe you're in the dark night of the soul I want you to know it's okay to rely on the faith of your friends. We need to cultivate these friendships, these true gospel friendships to place Jesus at the center, recognizing our needs. This isn't the main gist of this story this morning, but I thought it was helpful just to touch on that for a minute. So let's move on. I want to group the rest of this, the rest of how we're looking at this, through the eyes, through the perspective of three different groups, okay? So the first group I want us to have the perspective of as we read through this is from the, 
from the perspective of the seekers of the healing. Okay, and every single one of these groups that we're going to talk about, there's a surprise or there's a twist or there's something to learn from each of this. So Jesus sees the faith of the paralytic's friends. Okay, let's go on from there. He sees their faith and he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. So Jesus sees their faith and he acts on it, okay? But it's within this that we see our first surprise. So again, these guys had their one mission, right? They'd heard all this commotion about this man called Jesus from Nazareth who was performing these amazing miracles and they wanted in on the action. So they resolved to bring their mate on some sort of stretcher, mat or something, bring up to the roof, lower him down through a roof. They had done it. They had done everything that they wanted to achieve. All that was left was for Jesus to say, you're healed. And that was it. Their job was done. But Jesus doesn't say you're healed. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. If you read the same story in the Gospel of Mark, instead of saying, man, your sins are forgiven, it's son, your sins are forgiven. But this wasn't what they were looking for. They didn't ask for his sins to be forgiven. If I was in that group, I feel like I would say something like, uh, Jesus, that's nice, that's, that's cool, thanks. Thanks, really nice. But that's, that's not, that I don't think I said, that's not what I said. Did you not see the effort that we went to to get this guy in front of you? You see he's paralytic, like that, that's what we came for. That Jesus, can't you see that we've got a more serious problem here? And Jesus' point is no, you don't. No, you don't have a more serious problem. You think this physical suffering is your problem? You think that's gonna destroy you? It won't. If anything, that physical suffering brought you to me, says Jesus. You think because you're paralyzed, you think that just because you're paralyzed, that if, if you could just walk again, that everything would be fine, that you'd have no more problems. How many of us know this feeling to be true, that if we could just fix that one thing, then we would be sweet? That if we just had that little bit more money, that if, if we just had a bigger, a slightly bigger house, we'd be able to have more people over and bless the stranger and bless our Christian brothers and sisters. If we, if we just had that job to earn a little bit more money, then we'd be able to be more generous. If, if I just had that spouse or that partner, if, if, if my kids just acted in this way, if I just had that thing, how many of us fall into this trap time and again? We think we need something but Jesus actually sees what we really need. This is incredibly important in that no material prosperity, no physical condition, nothing is more important, Jesus is getting at here, than having a right relationship with God. He's pushing this hard. And that isn't to say, I'm not saying that the physical isn't important. Because Jesus heals him, right? We believe in... Uh, uh, we, Jesus became flesh and blood. He took on flesh and blood. The body is important. He died in flesh. He rose in flesh. He's coming back again in flesh. In eternity, we will be risen. We will have new bodies with him. The body matters. The physical and the spiritual, they're interlinked. They're so interlinked, and that's very important. But we need to realize, as important as the physical is, it is not our primary need your most fundamental problem is sin. Sin is the fundamental problem of the human condition. Now saying that can be 
offensive. It's tough to swallow this idea. But when we look at the full picture of the gospel, this is what we learn. The full picture of the gospel, we are made in the image of God and it is good. Then sin enters the picture and it is not good. We're in the season of Lent and on Ash Wednesday, just a couple of Wednesdays ago, we were reminded that from dust we came to dust we shall return. We're going to die and we're going to sin on the way to dying. But the full picture of the gospel also takes us from the dust to the skies because in Christ Jesus you're accepted. In Christ Jesus you're forgiven and when the Father looks at you, if you're in Christ Jesus, he sees beauty, he sees righteousness because Christ's righteousness is draped over you like a cloak. This idea of sin is offensive, it's controversial, but that is our most fundamental problem. But Thomas, I've been wronged by someone, you might say. I've been hurt, I've been lied to, I've been stolen from. Or Thomas, think about the bigger picture here. You're not thinking about what's going on in the world. There's a war being raged on innocent lives. What about world peace? What about slavery? What about sex trafficking? What about poverty and disease? What about financial corruption? What about all these things that Christians are called to try and make a difference in, to try and see the kingdom of God um, released into? And we say, I say, yes, 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 of course these things are important. But we can talk about all the systemic sins in the world today, but they will never be resolved until the individual heart recognizes that we are Guilty before God. The systemic sins of the world will never be resolved until the individual heart recognizes that we are all guilty before God. D.A. Carson says this, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he'd have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, oh my goodness, do we need that? He would have sent us a politician. If he perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin. And our sin alienates us from him. Our profound rebellion, our death. So he sent us a savior. People don't think that their biggest problem is a spiritual theological issue where they need to have their sins forgiven, but it is, that's the fact. And it's hard preaching this into a society that convinces us that this isn't how we should think. This idea of sin before God has been lost. We're pretty good at identifying sin between others. It's like, think about it this way. If civil court is person versus person, dealing with trust issues, dealing with broken contracts, person between person. Our sin before God is in the criminal court where someone has violated the rules of the state. All of sin has been taken out of that and placed in civil court. This is what our society believes. We have a society where self-centeredness is the dominant cultural narrative. We're told to shed off guilt because that's not a good way to live. 
Right and wrong is redefined. Good and evil is redefined. And the hard edges of truth are softer and softened for something much more palatable. And this is such a strong influence in society that it affects how churches operated too. I read in the last couple of weeks that a particular denomination in the States asked Keith and Kristen Getty, the writers of In Christ Alone, they asked them to change one of the lyrics. So instead of singing, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, the amended version would read, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And this isn't the first time it's happened. Amazing Grace, one of the most beautiful hymns, one of the most well-known songs in the world that was born out of the abolitionist movement in the United States, the, instead of singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, in some places been changed to Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. Now that's true, but what are, what are we doing there? The doctrine of original sin is offensive, but we need it. Without it, we can't make sense of our brokenness. We can't make sense out of society's brokenness. In his book, The Trial, Kafka wrote about a man who has put on house arrest to his great surprise because to his knowledge he hasn't done anything wrong. And a big part of the book is him thinking, talking to himself, trying to figure out what on earth he'd done to be arrested. And he can't get to the answer. He's thinking, there must be something, I must have done something wrong if I've been arrested, but he can't figure out what it is. And the writer reflecting on this book later in life in his diaries wrote, the state we find ourselves in is sinful, quite independent of guilt. See, we have this feeling that something's wrong, but we're told not to feel guilty. Who's to say what is wrong in modern life? If you've had an affair, so what? Good for you. You do you. Society might not believe in hell or sin or judgments. Might not believe against judgment. Might not believe in judgment between human and God. Yet every single person has a voice that you can't quiet. You might not believe any of that stuff about hell or sin or judgment. But there's a sense of condemnation, condemnation that we can't shake off. It's a voice in the back of our heads and it's calling us fools. It's calling us a fake. It's calling us cowards. And you know it, we've all felt that voice. We've all done these prerequisite moves to make ourselves feel better, to try and not feel guilt, to try and not feel shame. But we know that there's still that voice that's saying, you have not done enough. We all know this to be true. We feel ourselves to be sinners, even independent of guilt. The voice is so hard to quiet. It's like a sense of having a stain that we can't get out. See, what Jesus is doing here is diagnosing our problem properly. Say a patient goes to a doctor, they're bleeding. The doctor says, you're a wuss, you're fine, where you go. But on closer look, the patient comes back again. The patient is inspected in a little bit more detail. But the second doctor says, you've actually got a rare form of leukemia. That's why you're bleeding. That misdiagnosis is fatal. 
Getting the right diagnosis is key to our lives being saved. And Jesus has identified, Jesus has given us a diagnosis. Your fundamental problem is sin. That might sound like bad news, and it is bad news, but it's being delivered by Jesus himself who has come to deal with that problem. So there is good news ahead. But that's the first surprise. This paralytic and his friends came for healing. Jesus gave them something else. Jesus gave them something better to deal with their true problem. Okay, the second perspective we're going to look at here, before we get to the Pharisees, let's change our perspective and think about just the readers of the story, which does include ourselves. A general look here that anybody who's ever read this, anyone who was even there listening to this as unfolded, ancient readers, also ourselves, let's just pay attention to what's going on here. Because a thoughtful reading helps us pick up on another little twist with that same verse. And it's, it's this. Whenever Jesus says, he, Jesus sees their faith, and he responds, man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus forgives without being asked. There's no repentance evident in this little bit of the text. And I'm not a great scholar of the Bible, but I'm pretty sure that forgiveness and repentance go hand in hand. There's, there's no indication in Scripture that you get forgiveness if you don't repent. So what's going on? Well, Jesus doesn't contradict Scripture, and neither does the Gospel of Mark. So let's try and figure this out. I think verse 22 gives us a clue. When Jesus perceived their thoughts... This is such fun storytelling. Jesus, in perceiving reading thoughts, Jesus, in having the power to heal, Jesus, in, with that power, knowing, being able to, 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 to see into someone's hearts, knowing the big problem, knowing the deeper, deeper problem, I think we can conclude the, that uh, and we really need to get, like, listen into this because this gets right, right to the very heart of Jesus. Jesus forgives a man who doesn't appear to have repented. And because he doesn't contradict Scripture, the only conclusion is that Jesus is able to perceive in this paralytic man's heart some sort of partial, fragmentary, imperfect, inarticulate yearning for grace and mercy. Jesus is able to perceive that in his heart, and even more than that, he responds to it. So even though this man hadn't said anything out loud about asking for grace and mercy, Jesus is so tender, Jesus is so emotionally sensitive, so eager to dispense grace, so keen to bless, that he responds to the inarticulate. Jesus, maybe you can have this view of Jesus where he's cold and distant and removed. That couldn't be further from the truth. It's not like we go to Jesus and ask for forgiveness and he says, you didn't ask me right, try again. He has this ability to perceive this cry for mercy in our hearts. How often do we fall into the trap of thinking, if I, just, if I just say the right things, if I just pray prayers that sound a little bit more fancy, if I just take these five steps, if I just clean myself up a little bit, then God will pay attention to me that my sins will be dealt with. I couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus is aggressive 
in his offering of grace. He senses what's going on in this man's heart. He's, he's so eager to give grace, so willing to forgive, so ready to embrace. that This man can't even get the words out, and he is still willing to do that. Jesus is still willing to step towards him. And the lesson we can take from that is we need to trust this man. Trust this Jesus who looks at you, and even before you get the words out of your mouth, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Like the heart of the, of the father of the prodigal son, the prodigal son has rehearsed this speech to try and convince his dad to love him again, but as soon as the prodigal son gets in the presence of his father, his father sees him from across the hill, and he legs it towards him, he tells him to shush, and he hugs him. He gives him his coat and he says, welcome home, my son. We need to trust this man. And this isn't a one-off story. Read the Gospels again and again. And the picture we get of Jesus is one of tenderness, of kindness. Take the story, for instance, when Jesus gets to his friend's house, Mary comes running out and says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus responded by weeping. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. He didn't have to. He could have healed. Like we all know the story, right? Where he heals Lazarus. Lazarus comes out and this amazing miracle happens. Jesus could have done that beforehand, but he has this tenderness that he goes to visit his friends and he weeps with them alongside them. In Mark 7, read of, the, of, of Jesus healing this, this man who is deaf and who can't speak. Jesus removes him from the crowd. He doesn't want to make a spectacle here. And what does he do? He touches the deaf man's ears. He touches his lips. We know that he doesn't need to do that. He, again, he can heal like that. But I think he does it to reassure the deaf man. To let him know what's happening. Isn't that just so lovely? Maybe a, a final example, if I still haven't convinced you. Mark 5, Jairus' daughter has died. Everyone is mourning and crying. He says, Jesus says, she's just asleep. Everybody laughs at Jesus. So he goes in with the parents. And in Aramaic, he says, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. Now that little girl, the word for little girl, it isn't just as like a generic little girl. It's, it's little one. It's sweetheart. It's like, think of the picture of, of a father reaching down to pick up his daughter who's just lying in a field in the summer sun, enjoying herself. Little one, get up. This is Jesus reaching into death, death being our most unavoidable, inescapable foe. Jesus just calmly reaches in and pulls her out of it. Come on, sweetheart, let's go doesn't have to do that. We know he can heal her. He doesn't have to do that, but his tenderness overflows. He could be walking 100 miles away from someone and, and say a household owner comes running up and says, Jesus, my servant is sick. And he's like, yeah, yeah, he's fine. He's healed. That's cool. Done. He doesn't. He's tender. He's gracious. Why wouldn't we trust a man like that? Finally, let's look at the perspective of the Pharisees and the leaders and the surprise that they get. 
So from verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? See them answering questions, asking questions again. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, not with an answer, he answered them with more questions. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. Here's the, weird, the funny thing about the Pharisees in this moment is they're absolutely right. They're absolutely right. They have a point. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Maybe another way to put this is like this. Say there's, a, there's me, John, and Richard, right? And Richard punches John right in the nose. Blood everywhere, okay? It's going to make things a little bit awkward. So John is bleeding from his nose, right? His nose is broken. It's out of joint. Blood everywhere. Comparison is like me going up to, 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 to Richard and saying, Richard, I forgive you for punching John. I forgive you. John's not going to be too happy. John's going to say, eh, hang on a second there, pal. You're not the one who got punched in the face. You're not the one whose nose is broken. You're not the one who has blood all over, all over his clothes and has to deal with that. You can't forgive Richard for punching me. Only I can do that. Because only I can forgive sins that are against me. See where we're going here? If Jesus says to this paralytic, someone he's never met before, your sins are forgiven, the implication is that Jesus is saying all sins are against me. And the Pharisees know exactly what he's doing here. The Pharisees know that Jesus is saying that they're in the presence of God. You can only forgive sins that are against you. He's saying that all sins are against me. Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven. That must have meant that the sins are against him. The only person you could say that is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Jesus is saying, yeah, that's me. Jesus is saying, when you lie, it's my commands you're breaking. When you trample on some human being, that's my creation you're trampling on. You're sinning against me. So the Pharisees are shocked. They're upset. And Jesus could have just left them there, reeling with, like, dealing with that truth bomb. There you go. See you. Deal with it. Instead, he pushes on a little bit further. And he asks them the question, which is easier? Which is easier? This is such an interesting question. So Jesus knows their skepticism. He knows what he said. He knows now what they're thinking. So he leads them and he offers them a riddle. Which is easier? Or maybe put another way, which is harder? To say, get up and walk, or to say your sins are forgiven? Think about that for a second. What is easier to say? Jesus, in that moment, I think is doing this. That the listeners at the time, you and I reading this today, everyone reading this at any time would think, it's much harder to say the latter, right? To be able to say someone to get up, like that's real power. That's like, that's some real action. Jesus says, no, 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 no. 
Jesus is saying, you don't know how much harder it is for me to put myself in a position where I can say to an unclean world, you're clean. To the unforgiven world, you're forgiven. You know how I can do that, he asks. The answer, when Jesus goes to the cross, he bore what he's removing from that man. When Jesus went to the cross mobile, he was nailed immobile so that the man who is immobile in the moment becomes mobile. Last week we looked at the leper. The leper comes in from out of town because Jesus Christ was crucified outside of town, outside the city gate. It's only because Jesus died. It's only because he was paralyzed. It's only because his bones were broken. Are you able to get up and walk? It's only because he was cast out. It was only because he became the disease, the curse, forsaken by the Father so that you could be brought in and welcomed in. Jesus is saying, it is much harder for, the, for this man's sins to be forgiven because you don't know what I have to go through. And then to demonstrate that he has the power to forgive those sins, he heals the man anyway. He heals the man anyway. He says, get up and walk. So whatever way you look at it, Jesus is showing, he's demonstrating comprehensively that he has the power to forgive. Let me pick back up my earlier analogy. The doctor now recognizes that this patient has leukemia, okay? This patient has been given a proper and accurate diagnosis. The treatment's then. The treatment is the next important piece of the puzzle. It's one thing to get the diagnosis right, but the treatment then, if the doctor sends away the patient with a plaster and a lollipop, the patient's going to die. And that's much of a disaster is not being diagnosed accurately in the first place. We need a proper course of treatment to follow a proper diagnosis. And the right course of action is Christ on the cross. And the good news, my friends, is that's exactly what happened. We can trust this man with our lives. He knows our need. And he has solved it through his work on the cross. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to come to the Lord's table and take this meal again. We're going to sing. And as you stand, I want to ask you to close your eyes. Let's take a minute to reflect on the text that we've just read, on the questions that it poses us. Jesus is asking questions here. Let's think about them. Close your eyes if you want to. Holy Spirit, come. Convict us. Show us the Savior. If you're new to church, if you've never admitted your need for a Savior, maybe today's the day you do. Maybe today's the day you recognize the most fundamental problem of sin for the first time in your life, or the second time in your life, or the third time. There's good news for you this morning, friends. Jesus has done everything on the cross to forgive you now and forever. If that's you this morning, I want to ask you to come and talk to me. Come speak to me. I want to pray for you. Tell you about this Jesus who has saved us. For those of you who are following Jesus, this is still relevant to us too. We are a people of the cross. It is part of our practice to continually remember, remember that sin is our most fundamental problem and that it has been dealt with. Every time you stumble, this tender, kind-hearted, gracious Savior 
has, has taken your sin. We don't have to carry guilt or shame. Maybe the Spirit's prompting you to step up for a friend. Is there someone whose faith is on the rocks and you need to be the friend that is praying for them, that is bringing them before Jesus? Maybe you just needs to be reminded of the tender heart of Jesus towards you. He is so kind. He is so eager to give mercy. He's so aggressive in giving grace. Maybe you just need to be reminded of that. Come to him again this morning. He is, he is for you. He loves you.